You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Robin Danner has been an outspoken voice with the Sovereign Council of Hawaiian Homestead Associations. She shared the stage with Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, among others, at a housing and urban development conference yesterday. We talked to her at its conclusion. She was optimistic about finding some solutions to help get more people out of homelessness and into housing. The conversation ranged from tax credit use, project-based vouchers, which was a fascinating conversation of how to use better Section 8-type vouchers toward new housing and redevelopment of housing. So it was really an out-of-the-box kind of thinking around affordable housing. And the problem is everywhere. Well, was there anything that we could latch on to and try and use here as far as you saw as as solutions? Absolutely. A couple of notes that I took is that some of these big city mayors, and I thought of our city and county of Honolulu, is that they're starting to do land banking, which, you know, you're raised in the in junior high and high school that land banking is bad. That's from a capitalist view, but not necessarily from a government view. And so there was a really robust conversation around cities acquiring more land and acquiring units, actually taking them out of the market so that they are available for affordable housing. For us, too, we've always stated in terms of the overall state of Hawaii that we really need to get some traction around what other states have successfully done, which is to invest in and create an ecosystem for nonprofit developers to be strong so that you don't need incentives per se to the private sector to build affordable housing, but because it's built, owned, and operated by nonprofit developers, you've got a natural mission-based reason for those units to stay affordable. Well, I'm not sure if our city and county of Honolulu is in a position to land bank. I mean, I know there's a process now where even some of the schools where the city owns the land that the state is eyeing of those parcels. If the school needs to shut down because it's too small, slate that property for redevelopment for housing. That's been something that's been talked about for Oahu, right? That's what you're speaking yes. of? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. The conversation was about utilizing home funds, CDBG funds, really core programs that flow through the national HUD office down to cities and counties. And that's what they're they're u- utilizing those funds to acquire lands. And CDBG is Community Development Block Grants? It's one of the very few federal flavors of grant capital that shows up every single year. It's one of the few flavors of federal capital that is controlled by county government, meaning our county councils have the discretion to put those funds out for competitive bid or to deploy them within the county system for affordable housing and economic development type projects. Are you aware, are there any restrictions on those CDBG funds that maybe we should be, I don't know, looking at if it's if something is getting CDBG in the way? CDBG is an old, old program and can be counted on every single year. It's pretty flexible, and it does have, rather than restrictions, it has incentives to push those dollars toward affordable housing and those kinds of projects. In our uh, recent past, for example, city and county of Honolulu had had a difficult time pushing those funds out the door every single year. But I think, you know, with the CARES Act, with the American Rescue Plan, and I hope our county governments are getting much, much better at passing through and and procurement, getting capital out. We've all been hearing about the homeless problem there in uh, Los Angeles. Was there anything that was floated today that they're using there that we could apply here? I was struck by the L.A. mayor, again, in the conversation about city government acquisitions of land and housing improvements and out of the marketplace there. They mentioned the same approach where city governments are taking the helm of parcels of land that they're dedicating for homelessness and different kinds of um, housing approaches. It was interesting. The pandemic, of course, has taken everyone out of their comfort zone, and the mayors were expressing how that area that they are jumping in with two feet again in a perhaps unusual methodology, not leaving it to the private sector, 
but jumping in and designating, I think the L.A. mayor mentioned 20 different projects where city land is being dedicated to the issues of homeless. And you mentioned Section 8. Where were they using that aspect to help with the housing? The Section 8 voucher program, which we, of course, have as well, the conversations between HUD, the officials at HUD, and the mayors today centered around city governments being creative and innovative about using Section 8 vouchers and applying them toward a new development rather than just the same old, same old process of having a Section 8 voucher and it be designated only to rental use in the private sector rental market. I'm really optimistic, too, because the HUD officials in Washington are talking a lot about project-based vouchers, Section 8 vouchers. For, for example, Catherine, up to 30% of Section 8 voucher allocations can be used in this way on new development. And then what were you able to share just about our situation in Hawaii? Well, my role uh, was as the elected chairwoman of the Shaw, uh, which is uh, Hawaii is one of 35 states in the country that have trust lands, like Hawaiian homelands. Of course, they don't, uh, in the other 34 states, they don't call them homesteads like we do, Hawaiian homelands, uh, but they are nevertheless um, from the same policy era in the early uh, 1900s, whether it's whether people call them Indian reservations or allotment acts or lands held in, into trust. My role really was to discuss nationally the perspectives of affordable housing and economic development given the land trust nature of our lands. We discussed the need for culturally appropriate housing, culturally appropriate and relevant design rather than taking on age-old assimilated housing models and for us to be more innovative. For example, HUD since the 1937 Housing Act has really laid down one home uh, one family, one house, one family, when that's really not how Native peoples culturally live. It's very multifamily generational by choice. And so uh, the conversation that we talked about was the, the reality that we could do a much better job, for example, on Hawaiian homelands. Instead of doing uh, one home, uh, perhaps it should start out as a duplex or as a triplex, which would still fit within the one to four family a mortgage capital framework. So that's that's one example. Okay, but then you would be able to house tutu. Absolutely. I mean, it feels like we're always trying to play catch up, and especially for Hawaii with a limited land base, uh, we need to do more vertical. We need to we need to be more innovative rather than just adopting mainland style home, the the white picket fence. Like I said, one house, one family. When that's really not the reality for Native Hawaiians. On any island, we're very multi-generational in our living and in our goals. Okay. And then, uh, gosh, I don't know, what would you like to see happen in the future for Hawaiian homelands? I mean, this is a kind of a big year for its anniversary. July 9th, you know, just a few weeks away, will be the 100th centennial anniversary of the enactment of the Hawaiian Homelands Trust. And I'm sure very few would disagree that we have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of room for improvement. We need to do a much better job, not just from a state agency perspective, but better partnerships with beneficiaries themselves, with Hawaiian Homestead Associations, with the leadership across the state that remain on homesteads and or the wait list, even when our elected officials move on through the, the cycles of democracy. I'd like to see the Department of Hawaiian Homelands really lean in with their shoulder on issuing land to the wait list and not getting sidetracked with distractions like generating revenue. That's not their function. That's not their purpose, nor is it even necessary. The resources available sitting there ready for infrastructure development and then land dispositions to the wait list are enormous. The legislature has done a great job the last four or five years, and in fact, even in one of our trust funds from Act 14 from 1995, there's $150 million sitting there. We need to move capital so that we can move land dispositions to people on that wait list. That was Robin Danner, chair of the Sovereign Council of Hawaiian Homestead Association. She was talking about 
Housing and the Upcoming Centennial of the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. of attention is paid to the executive and legislative branches of our state government. But for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to highlight our judicial branch. According to its website, the Hawaii Supreme Court is the state's court of last resort. It hears appeals, election complaints, makes the rules for all state courts, regulates attorneys, and disciplines judges. At the court's outset in 1840, it was known as the Supreme Court of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Its first chief justice, King Kamehameha III. As Hawaii changed from a kingdom to a republic, to a U.S. territory, to a U.S. state, so did the court. Today, it consists of five judges, with Mark Rechtenwald currently serving as chief justice, a title he's held since 2010. He is the 20th judge to hold the title and the fifth since statehood. Many longtime residents may remember his predecessor, Ronald Moon. The courthouse in Kapolei bears his name. But what we want to know today is, do you know the name of the state of Hawaii's first Supreme Court Chief Justice? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check looks at the governor's possible veto list. Legislative reporter Blaze Level joins us today. So, you know, we've got the tentative list. Uh, you know, the biggies, of course, uh, the TAT uh, and, uh, you know, the funding for the counties. Um, what else is on there? Uh, there's lots on his list. And I'd just like to point out at the top that this is a pretty lengthy list for any Hawaii governor, really. This is the most uh, the governor has, I mean, so far thrown on his intent to veto list. This comes every year after a legislative session. And the governor yesterday, during a press conference, chalked it up uh, mostly to how the legislature handled a lot of these American Rescue Plan funds. Many of his bills were budgetary bills that ended up on the list. Uh, He's proposing some line item vetoes so trying to take out specific items that he feels the legislature didn't properly use those federal relief funds for significantly he's asking them to take out 314 million dollars worth of bond financing from the state budget bill uh, that lawmakers were using uh, federal relief funds for those are going to go to various you know renovation projects throughout the state uh, construction projects throughout the state and lawmakers are going to have to evaluate whether those projects should be funded you know through the state treasury uh, or some other mechanism and you know uh, there was lots of talk about yeah you know being on this uh, fiscal cliff and that uh, you know they needed to make plans for that right i mean just in case uh, how do we keep government going Uh, but uh, the governor seems to think that some of the funding that they were going to uh, provide isn't really um, isn't allowed under the guidelines. Yes, that's exactly correct. And regarding the fiscal cliff, uh, another reason why the governor axed some of the measures he did yesterday, or at least intends to veto them, uh, such as a 
raising the conveyance taxes. Uh, those are taxes on the sales of multi-million dollar properties. Uh, he said a lot of those revenue generating measures, uh, those you know tax raises, they're not necessary this year because the Council on Revenues a couple of months ago projected that the state's going to bring in significantly more tax dollars than initially expected. You know, we're expecting a big economic recovery with tourism rebounding. And so the governor feels that we're in a better financial position now than we were a few months ago. However, some policy experts have warned that, you know, this is the time that the state should use to prepare the budget for the future and put us in a better financial position. There's still a question about whether or not we're doing that. And the line item vetoes, because the governor said something that was a little puzzling to me, um, that they could, the lawmakers could uh, basically tweak these line item vetoes and uh, not have to override the veto if they, you know, they, um, there was consensus. Yeah, and this was something we were trying to sort out in the office yesterday because, you know, typically the governor comes out with his intent to veto list and almost never does the legislature actually come back into a special session to reconsider some of their bills. This time, it looks like it's actually necessary. Now, I was told that the lawmakers have two options. Uh, so they could proceed with the normal override. That would require two-thirds of each chamber. That's the House and Senate uh, otherwise, and something that's more likely, is that they'll meet specifically to uh, address the governor's objections uh, to these bills, these specific line item vetoes. So, for example, in the budget bill, all those uh, what he thinks are misappropriated federal relief funds, the legislature can meet again to address those line items, and they would only need a simple majority in each chamber to do so. They Either way they go, it appears they need to meet by noon on July 6th to make either of those things happen. Yeah, I don't recall a time when they actually uh, did that where they uh, you know, reached consensus on something, just tweaking it on the floor. So that that's interesting. Yeah, and we'll definitely be watching it this week. The Senate's scheduled to meet. Actually, they're probably meeting right now. And the House will be meeting later this week. They're all evaluating their options and trying to uh, learn more about what exactly the governor is objecting to and what his proposals are. Yeah, so I hear the House is meeting Thursday, and then I guess we'll get a, a better idea um, uh, pretty close to the beginning of the week as to where things stand. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was Blaze, reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Today we talk about the cakey count. The snapshot isn't so good, so folks are probably wondering, what are we going to do about it? HBR's Casey Harlow joins us this morning. Hi, Casey. Morning, Catherine. So, yeah, you did this story on this report that came out about how well our kids are doing. Yes, uh, so this is the Kids Count data book uh, that is done annually by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Uh, just basically... do. Um, Checking on the well-being of children in across the country and giving uh, state highlights as well. And here in Hawaii, um, yeah, things kind of uh, went downhill a little bit within a year. Uh, we went from 17 uh, in 2020 down to 26 in 2021. And uh, what do they blame for this? So uh, this data book uh, sh uh, highlights and showcases um four categories, economic well-being, education, health, and family and community. Uh, the primary thing that really dropped us down uh, about nine spots was the economic well-being of children. But uh, you may be thinking to yourself, well, it's probably because of the pandemic. But it's actually uh, this report was deriving data from 2019, a time when you know the economy was booming. So really, it's probably worse than we think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I spoke with several people, uh, Nicole Wu with the Hawaii Children's Action Network. Uh, she's the Director of Research and Economic Policy. And she uh, basically chalked this one up mainly to uh, housing and also uh, indicator teens not in school and not working. Uh, those were pretty much the, 
two indicators within this economic well-being uh, measure that really dropped us down. And teens were, were learning remotely, and that we all saw drop the scores down. Right, exactly. But again, this was taken from data in 2019. And basically, it's 10% of, of teens uh, age 16 to 19 not in school and not working. And we are basically around the lower five states uh, within this indicator. So although the numbers are you know, not that big, 10%, you know, it does make a difference within the broader national rankings. And the children, uh, economic well-being, uh, the affordable housing costs, it's basically uh, 30% of a household's income going to housing or um, other factors, other income, other, you know, expenses and things like that. And we dropped from around 26 to 44 so who did you talk to then about these numbers? Nicole Wu, Director of Research and Economic Policy at the Hawaii Children's Action Network, also spoke with Yvette Rodriguez-Stern, who's with UH's Family on the Center. Uh, these two agencies help with collecting data and dissecting uh, what the data basically comes down to uh, with this NEE Casey Foundation. And just to uh, clarify, the NEE Casey Foundation gets all this information from uh, a wide variety of sources, the U.S. Census Bureau, the U.S. Department of Education, uh, local agencies, and also uh, uh, national organizations as well. And here's another uh, thing that we also was uh, a ding on the economic well-being of children, and this one is uh, basically household poverty, and Nicole Wu uh, said this. Unique to Hawaii is poverty numbers. The official poverty rate does not take into account the cost of living. So Hawaii in general always does quite well in poverty numbers. So in that economic well-being domain, we actually did really well in child poverty, all the way up at eighth in the nation. But if you look at this other indicator from the Census Bureau called the Supplemental Poverty Measure, which does take into account cost of living, Hawaii actually drops to 42 when it comes to poverty among the states. And uh, there are things that can be done, obviously. There could be a promotion of affordable housing that could help with these indicators. Uh, there's also other things that policymakers and local governments and can do to also help local families. And Nicole Wu also had this to say. There are ways to make sure that our families keep more of the money that they earned. Hawaii adopted an earned income tax credit, which is targeted at lower income working to middle-income families with children. Hawaii passed that in 2017. It can be improved. It can have more money going to families. It can be even better targeted to the lowest-income families. In the last legislative session earlier this year, most of our social service programs were shielded from budget cuts, but we did see some cuts to early learning programs, like preschool open doors and charter schools early learning programs. Yeah, and those cuts, I'm sure, yeah, hurt because I know there was that one report that was actually uh, that put Hawaii up at the, near the top about doing so well with the uh, early childhood programs. And, and if we're doing the right things but there's no funding, it just kind of sets that back. Exactly. And Yvette uh, Rodriguez-Stern uh, with UH's family on, uh, Center on the Family uh, also noted that education uh, Hawaii generally uh, is below average. Uh, there was some improvement uh, in 2021, and uh, that is mainly because there are efforts underway uh, to bolster early education within the state. Okay, but the bottom line is that uh, this was older data. Last year was a bad year, and so the picture is not going to be so good exactly. uh, when the next report comes out. Yeah, exactly. Advocates are very concerned right now because if this is based off 2019 data, 2020 being 2020, it's ex expected to be a lot worse. Yeah, solutions can come slow. Yep. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR reporter Casey Harlow. To read his stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. If you already use your smartphone or iPad to wake up in the morning, you can wake up to Morning Edition on Hawaii Public Radio. You can tune into either of our two stations first thing in the morning, all day long, and with our sleep timer, you can even fall asleep to HPR. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Download our app for iPhone, iPad, or Android, and stay connected with HPR. Interns took center stage over the weekend when an intern at HBO Max accidentally sent out a test email to the streaming services subscribers. The internet rallied around the intern with many sharing stories of their own internship snafus. This moment of celebration comes after a year of uncertainty. Many companies had to pause their internship programs during the pandemic, leaving students with few professional options. The conversation's very own intern, Matt Fairfax, checked in on how these programs are getting back on their feet. Here's Matt. One industry in Hawaii that had almost all of their in-person internships canceled last summer is the aviation industry. I spoke with Heather Ryland, the Senior Director of Talent Acquisition at Hawaiian Airlines, to see what the Hawaiian Airlines internship program will look like this summer and gauge her hopes for the program. Our goal is really to have a mutually beneficial program that has skills that develop people coming into the workforce and for us to also develop a pipeline of ready talent coming out as college grads. Ryland says the pandemic forced Hawaiian Airlines to be flexible with several roles at the company, including interns. We've been in business for over 90 years, but yet we've seen a lot of rapid change in this last year. Um, much of that around making sure that we stay really guest focused while having to change the way we do work. So in some ways we work differently. We learned how to be effective in some roles working remotely. And again, just making sure that we're really supporting our guests and our customers through our guests and our employees through um, really challenging kind of unprecedented times. So I would say that the workplace changed um, the most that an intern uh, would see in terms of being able to have more flexible work and work options. Interns at the program will be placed into various departments where positions will determine if work needs to be in-person or remote. They applied specifically for roles that uh, we had available and that matched their interests and their studies. And those roles ranged from uh, our training department to our technical engineers, marketing, and uh, quite a few in information technology. You know, I would say that the majority is still going to be hands-on. Um, we really want them to feel like this is a, a realistic job preview and be able to have things that they get to accomplish and experience and learn. So we have a, a hybrid work environment now for some roles. Uh, take IT, for instance, in particular, because they tend to be able to be so effective working remotely. Um, they work up to two days a week remotely. So those participating in the internship will be able to do the same thing. However, there are some other roles that focus more on the support on the maintenance and engineering side. Those that are uh, very actually located in our maintenance hangar, those won't have remote work opportunities, not nearly to the same degree, because their role is really that essential employer that's uh, there supporting that staff that's right there to support the aircraft itself day in and day out. Ryland says the pandemic did cause some setbacks for their program last summer. We had a successful program in 2019 where we had 20 interns in a program. We had a plan for 2020, but we did um, cancel that program at the time. We didn't think that we could support it as well as we would have wanted to, just based on the, the really rapidly changing conditions. So June 2020 didn't feel like the right time for us to be able to execute on the program. But Ryland believes the pandemic did not hurt Hawaiian Airlines' ability to recruit and evaluate potential summer interns this year. We had a great response and turnout when we posted our positions at the end of January. And 
started our interview process at that point. So we were in a, a very good place. I think we were probably, I would guess, maybe at about 80 to 90 percent of the level of applications that we had in the previous two years. So we had, we still had nearly the same turnout and and definitely the same quality. We're really excited about the 17 participants that are coming in to the program. When we first decided in January, there were probably more unknowns than knowns in terms of what June would look like, but we felt much more prepared to be able to have a program that could be conducted either as a hybrid program or a remote program. Uh, we felt like we had a lot more tools at our disposal. We were much more uh, coordinated and experienced in remote work. So unlike June of 2020, we felt like June of 2021, we would just have to be flexible, adaptable, and just make the decision to move forward. And, you know, happily, we do have some uh, less restrictions uh, at this time so that a, a hybrid program, as far as um, mostly work in the office and some remote work, uh, we think will set us up to be really successful. So most of the internships I applied to, I was applying to it, you know, at midnight, I was furiously sending them all out. Um, just thinking, uh, I hopefully at least one of them bite, and thankfully at least I, I got a bite. That's Kelly Huang, a rising junior at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She got more than just a bite. She's working for NASA. So uh, currently I'm, I'm doing a virtual NASA internship for 12 weeks during the summer, and I found that out uh, through actually doing a program for community college students. So uh, it's completely free to attend for community college students. It's always online, um, and it's uh, during, I believe, either the spring or fall or even, I'm not, I'm not sure, but maybe the summer semesters, but it's the NASA Community College Aerospace Scholars um, Program, and it's basically a self-study, a self-guided program that you do online. A lot of other community college students do it, and uh, we, I actually had no intention of applying to kind of NASA internships until I did that program, and a lot of the other students were on the Discord talking about, you know, um, if people were applying, which ones, if so, which ones are you applying to? And then so I got interested, and I believe this was around uh, February or March this year. Huang says she has prepared a lot to get the most out of her NASA internship. Uh, well, I, I, first of all, I already taught myself Python, obviously not the entire language, and that's really hard to do, but the first couple of weeks, um, because I'll be using Python throughout the summer. I kind of did a crash course, you know, watching a lot of YouTube tutorials and kind of self-guided teaching. And it wasn't too difficult. I've already uh, learned some coding languages last year for my school curric college curriculum. Um, and I also just plan to do cool stuff. I, I have been put on a team to do with uh, wind tunnels and data analysis with that. So, yeah, just a lot of cool stuff and a, a massive learning experience. Huang says her intention to find a remote internship allowed her to shoot for the stars during her internship hunt. So I'm currently on the island of Oahu and actually having the pandemic kind of uh, made my scope wider as these in, the internship that I'm currently doing, it was previously an in-person at the Ames Research Center in California. and. Uh, I would have had to make, you know, travel arrangements, living arrangements, and et cetera. But now I can do that from the comfort of my home. And I also, when I was applying to internships, and I probably applied to an upwards of 100 plus, just like emailing them out on LinkedIn or, or email or whatever. And uh, there was a lot more opportunities, I felt like, um, in, in the jobs that I wanted to do, like computer science or finance, because... I was able to search remote jobs or, or virtual jobs. And I think my main motivation is just really wanting the experience. And, um, and I'm currently uh, in the fall, I plan to take 19 credits at the university. So it's kind of hard for me to have a part-time job or you know, a fall internship or spring internship just because of how many credits and classes I want to take for my degree. So the summer really gives me an opportunity to have these experiences. That was the conversation's Matt Fairfax talking to Heather Rylan and Kelly Wong about the state of internships in Hawaii this summer.
This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips explains what a cosmic burp has to do with the astrophysical phenomenon known as the Great Dimming in this week's Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also what we can try and look for in our dark island skies. As usual, grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We're welcoming him back right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers, look out for Mars and Venus, which can both be seen in the West after sunset. Mars will be setting around 9.20 p.m. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, which means, of course, that stargazing for those faint objects is going to be very challenging indeed. And this week, you've got an update on a story that we had a ways back on Stargazer regarding that mysterious dimming around Betelgeuse. Indeed. In fact, it was way back in 2019 that we first covered this. The supermassive red giant star Betelgeuse in the constellation of Orion began to dim dramatically. This normally brilliant star became muted in an event now known as the Great Dimming. The how and why of this peculiar astrophysical phenomena remained a mystery, with theories including dramatic internal changes within the star itself to vast clouds of interstellar dust obscuring the surface. At last, though, it appears the mystery has been solved by astronomers using the Very Large Telescope in Chile. Well, don't keep us in suspense. What happened? Well, the culprit has turned out to be the star itself. At some point before this all began, the surface of Betelgeuse began to cool quite a bit, probably when the giant star ejected an enormous bubble of superheated gas, which Uh we call plasma. This gas cooled as it moved away from the star, eventually condensing into solid dust and thus obscuring the surface. So the star burped is what you're saying? It did indeed. This stellar burp had quite dramatic consequences as one can imagine. In fact, so dramatic that they were visible hundreds of light years away here on the Earth. And while it's a burp, it's probably not something that the star ate that caused it, correct? (laughs) Right, exactly. But it does point to a rather serious issue inside the star, the fact that it's nearing the end of its life. As it does so, it will become probably more turbulent, and we may see more of these events happen. What's remarkable, though, is that these outgassing events produce cool stardust, the very stuff that you, I, planet Earth, and the sun are made of. Well, let's hope that our own sun doesn't do anything like this for a very long time. Luckily, our own sun's burps are a lot smaller. (laughs) It's Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week with Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the offices of the Liliuokalani Trust, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. For today's Beckard Quiz, we were testing your knowledge of the history of our state's judicial branch. While you may know Kamehameha III was the first Chief Justice of Hawaii Supreme Court, and Mark Rechtenwald currently holds the title, the court's first Chief Justice after statehood may not be widely known. He was born in Honolulu in 1897 to Japanese immigrants working on a sugar plantation. He graduated from McKinley High School in 1918 and served in the U.S. Army during World War I. After the war ended, he enrolled in college, earned his Juris Doctorate from the University of Chicago Law School, and then returned home to practice law. In 1946, he won a seat in the Territorial Senate, the first Japanese-American to do so, and served as Senate president until 1954. In 1959, he ran for the U.S. Senate, but narrowly lost to Orrin Long. The state of Hawaii's first governor, William F. Quinn, then appointed him to the Hawaii Supreme Court, where he became our state's first chief justice and the first Japanese-American to hold that title in U.S. history. If you're into the history of our state government, then you probably know we're talking about Wilfred Chomatsu Tsukiyama. And congratulations to our winner, Lono Lyman from Honolulu, knew the answer. He shared with us that he went to school with Tsukiyama's daughter. Thanks so much for calling in. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
year marks the 50th anniversary of the release of the film Rainbow Bridge. It was shot on Maui in 1971 with amateur actors and without a script, and it centers on the late 1960s counterculture on the island. It also included a live performance by the rock legend Jimi Hendrix, but that footage amounted to about 15 minutes at the end of the two-hour film. The music was not included on the film's soundtrack, and the public never got to see or hear the full performance until now. A documentary about the nearly forgotten Hendrix concert in the middle of a upcountry pasture was released recently. It's called Music Money Madness, Jimi Hendrix in Maui. Here's a clip from the trailer. Maui, free concert, Jimi Hendrix. On the side of a volcano. To see Jimi Hendrix in this setting, it was like a, a, a gift from God to me. It was insane. Crazy things happened that day from whatever Jimmy pulled out of that guitar. Spectacular. Jimmy at his, his best. So why did it take five decades for concert footage and music from a beloved artist like Jimi Hendrix performing in a groovy place like Maui to become available to the public? Well, the conversations Russell Subiono sat down with the documentary's director, John McDermott, to find out. The problem was is that Chuck Wine wanted to make a movie without a script that encompassed, you know, all elements of youth culture, you know, rooted in surfing in Maui, but all, everything from you know, from TM to uh, psychedelic drugs to everything, everything under the planet. And they blew through the money they had, and it, it, it quickly had become a, you know, a financial sinkhole and a potential disaster for Jeffrey. So, you know, Jimmy, when Jimmy was supposed to come in August of 1970 to play at the HIC Arena in Honolulu, it was a sold-out performance. He's really arguably the most popular touring artist at that time. The Beatles were no longer touring. You know, Bob Dylan hadn't resumed touring. So, you know, for him, when he came to Maui, it was kind of sprung on him and his band that, oh, by the way, we're going to film you guys playing in, in at the base of Haleakala. And, and you know, what, what, what the Warner Brothers film crew, you know, how they thought about it, it was that, you know, these people, the subjects of the movie, had happened on to this impromptu free Jimi Hendrix in the Baldwin uh, cow uh, pasture. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's as, it, it is literally as absurd as that. So um, they had a, announced a free concert just by word of mouth and, and bust and trucked some folks up to, uh, to the Olinda site. And Jimmy, you know, got up on, on top of this makeshift stage and played two amazing sets, and to him and the band, they were bemused because, you know, they thought that, you know, the cameras were really pointing the other way at the audience, so they just had fun. It was a very relaxed performance. You know, they really didn't feel that this was a Jimi Hendrix project where Jimi Hendrix had to carry the day. And he was, you know, Jimmy was badgered throughout his vacation in Maui, which was, you know, it's a promised time off to him. But, you know, please be in the movie. Please be in the movie. Can you be on camera? You know, none of which he really wanted to do. Um, but, you know, in the end, he, you know, he did the performance. They filmed it. It was very technically uh, poorly done because they didn't involve Jimmy or his crew or any of his technicians. So the Warner Brothers crew did it. It was, you know, 30 to 40 mile an hour winds that were coming you know, which are obviously known in that area. And, you know, while it was just an amazingly beautiful day, you know, they had to cut foam out of guitar cases and wrap them around microphones. And yeah, so that. there were certainly some technical challenges to get it done. Well, you know, Jimi Hendrix left his vacation in Maui, came home, went right back to Electric Lady Studios, where he was working on his next record, and then left for a tour of Europe, and then tragically died, you know, really six weeks later. Oh, wow. So... You know, at that point, where Rainbow Bridge had truly become a sinkhole, 
is where Michael Jeffrey, just in a desperate move, he really shoehorned, you know, a roughly edited 17-minute section of film because Mitch Mitchell's drums weren't recorded properly out in the field that day. So then, you know, Mitch volunteered to overdub them after Jimmy passed by watching his performance on a film movieola, an editing machine, which was an amazing feat in itself. So they were able to get those 17 minutes into the film. So, you know, Rainbow Bridge came out and was universally panned. Hendrix fans were really confused by it because his manager had, had, I think, sullied his reputation by trying to rescue his own project by putting this out. You know, if you think about it contextually, in 1970, at the time when Jimmy performed, um, you know, July 4th at the Isle of Wight, he's playing in front of a half a million people. You know, the Woodstock movie is the number one movie, and he's the centerpiece of that with the Star Spangled Banner and his performance. So the next real thing you see of Jimi Hendrix on film was this thing. And I think people were really confused because, you know, Jimmy isn't there to articulate, well, this is why I did it or what I was doing or what it was supposed to be. So that was always a problem. So it took a long time for us. You know, what we wanted to do was to just deconstruct it. I had written a book called Hendrix Setting the Record Straight with Eddie Kramer, Jimi Hendrix's engineer. And you know, in researching all of what had gone on, I was just, I, I was, you know, couldn't believe that an artist of Hendrix's stature could be caught up in such lunacy. So it was always on my mind that, God, this would be a, an amazing documentary. So the Hendrix family w wanted to, you know, they had the control of the performance and the footage, but we really wanted to find all of the various footage. Um, sadly, you know, uh, Wine and, and went through all kinds of troubles. Warners didn't like Rainbow Bridge. They effectively, you know, just took it back, didn't want to do anything with it. A lot of the film got lost. So we spent a lot of time trying to find what we could. And then we brought Eddie Kramer in to help, you know, kind of restore the audio as best we could and, and tell the story. So we came to Maui and, you know, filmed as many of the participants that were still living that had oh, significant wow. roles. And we came over, brought Billy Cox back. We went right back to the original, the original field. You know, we shot many interviews at, at, the, at the girls' school where Rainbow Bridge itself was filmed. So it's, you know, I, they'll recognize so much of, of Maui, you know, both at that time and then in present day. I also think for, for those in Maui, it's, it's remarkable to see the transformation from just what a sleepy island Maui was in July 1970 to what it is today. You know, that in itself really kind of helped us really fill in the gaps to this completely a story that if I told it to you, you wouldn't believe it. And yet it did happen. While working on the film, did you learn anything new or interesting about Jimmy or the or the concert that the public may not necessarily know? Well, I think the, the thing that's, that was, you know, really disturbing in a way was that, you know, Jimmy, after he died, you know, his art kind of became a, a tool for someone else. And I think in that, in Rainbow Bridge, I think, you know, how they marketed and included him in that, he took his music so seriously. I mean, it was really his life's work. And I think that the, the idea that, you know, Rainbow Bridge was an album that came out, the soundtrack album, and one of the, you know, inane things about it is that many of us fans, myself included, bought that record where there was some amazing music on it, but it wasn't the music, it wasn't the soundtrack to the film. These were just recordings that Jimi Hendrix was working on, which they, you know, tried to find a way to, to plug into the soundtrack. So I, I think that you couldn't imagine something like this happening to an artist of the caliber of the Beatles or Bob Dylan or, you know, somebody like that where Hendrix really kind of stood among. So that always was a concern for me. I mean, in terms of learning things, you know, I certainly learned more about the inanity of the production and, and all of the madness that, that ensued when you put folks who are working without a script, really don't know what they're doing, and put them together in a circumstance. And, you know, people just do what, you know, there's really nothing really to do without direction in a film. And we learn that and we talk about it in the film. You will, you know, there are many humorous stories of how that all came about. But but that that's really the, the takeaway for me. You know, the performances are great because, it, you know, Jimmy and the band are really just enjoying being in a beautiful Maui afternoon, you know, not having the pressure of this being a Jimi Hendrix concert at a venue like the HIC or anything like that. In fact, the great irony is, is that, you know, they did the show in Maui the day before the HIC. If they had gone over and filmed the HIC, they were phenomenal that night. That was the venue to bring cameras, light it theatrically, and capture an amazing performance. But that's all now part of the story.
The Pantheon of Hendrix concerts. Does this one even rank on that list? Well, it's one of the most unusual, and I think what's so cool about it is is that you get to see Jimmy and the band do both their hits and a bunch of new songs that they were working on that summer of 1970. So for them, they didn't view it as having to, you know, stack a hits-based, you know, set list together so that, you know, they could meet every expectation of the audience or anything like that. It was very a pressure-free performance, and I think in many ways, like, like his performance at the Woodstock Festival, he wasn't kind of caught up in that, you know, there are times when, you know, if you look at Atlanta Pop in July 4th, 1970, you know, again, Hendrix is, a, is the, the headliner. It comes at the climactic moment. But I think here in Maui, beautiful afternoon, those guys just had, were having fun. And you see it. I mean, you see the interaction between the three guys. It is one of the most unusual and really enjoyable Hendrix concerts um, that you'll ever see. You know, it's different from the other concerts, thankfully, that are filmed, but it really does stand on its own. That was John McDermott, director of Music Money Madness, Jimi Hendrix on Maui. Uh, he was talking with our Russell Subiono. For more information on where you can watch the live documentary and listen to the concert album, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Some kind of way out of here Said a joker to the thief There's too much confusion And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we take a closer look at the issues surrounding the car rental shortage across the state and the growing pains around the peer-to-peer platforms emerging. Got feedback? We would love to hear from you. Got a turbo in your neighborhood? Share your comments or questions about what you've heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.